Father, we worship you, we praise you, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you woke us up this morning. We thank you that we could witness another day of your glory and your mercy, of your sovereignty over our lives and over all of creation. Lord, as we meditate on your word right now, we ask that you would reveal new things to us and even cement old things for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh and Jordan and Jesse, for leading worship for us. And thank you also to Stephen for editing and being in the background. So, so last week we started our new series on the book of James. And Josh took us through chapter 1 and we dealt with issues of the, the testing of our faith and then also the importance of not only being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word as well. James I find to be a very interesting ca character. Um, first of all, in the original text in Hebrew and in Greek, James's name is not James, it's actually Jacob. Um, in, the, in the Greek it's Jacobos. So you may actually find a number of modern Bible translations that have the letter of Jacob or Jacob rather than James. James, as Josh mentioned last week, is the half-brother of Jesus. And Jesus apparently um, had four half-brothers. Um, and we read about that in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. His brothers were James, Joseph, um, Simon and Jude. Jesus also actually had some sisters, but we aren't sure how many sisters there were. Furthermore, um, I think few of us realize that at least five of the apostles were related to Jesus, <laughs> which, which maybe explains to us why there were so many of them present at the wedding in Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. Um, as, we, as we read through the book of James, we see that um, James has an interesting way of writing. He doesn't seem to have a, an order um, for mentioning the practical, no-nonsense principles of our faith, of our walk of faith. He, he starts with a subject, then he leaves it, and then he comes back to it a little bit later on. But his style of writing actually, I think, serves the purpose of the book, of the letter, which is to, to urge followers into action. And so, James being the overseer of the church in Jerusalem, at that time he writes to these, to these little churches, these little congregations who were made up of believers who come out of Judaism, and he addresses issues that he had noticed that these followers, these believers, were finding themselves guilty of. And this evening, as we work through chapter 2 of, of, of the letter of James, we're going to look at two issues. Now, what happens here in chapter 2, as we read, is that James, he continues with the theme of testing the evidences, the, the proof of a living faith. But what he does is, he applies those truths, those evidences, in the context of community. 
in the context of congregational life. Now for us, this is a very important aspect as followers, as um, followers of Jesus, in that besides the, the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit that shapes us, the most prominent tool that God uses to grow us is community. We see actually as we read through this letter a thread that keeps bringing us back to how we act when we are in community. So let's read from James chapter 2. We'll start out by reading the first 13, 13 verses. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor here by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles as just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Before we unpack some of the issues that we want to focus on this evening, I, I find it quite interesting in how um, James starts out this chapter. The, the wording that he uses to describe Jesus. He calls Jesus our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting to me because James, as we know, is Jesus' brother. I know what it's like to grow up with brothers. I have two. And so as boys, I imagine that James and Jesus would have spent hours playing together and done so much together, spending so much time in each other's presence. But James, who grew up so close to Jesus, knew better than anybody that Jesus was a man, at the same time recognized that Jesus was and is God. So despite the fact that James would have known all of Jesus' quirks, having grown up so closely next to him, James uses a term here in the original Hebrew 
a term that is called Shekinah to describe Jesus. The Shekinah glory means the physical manifestation, the dwelling of God's divine glory amongst men in Jesus, uh, which for me is a very striking way to describe Jesus. And so in these verses here that we've read, James is talking about favoritism, about preference or partiality, one-sidedness. We could also call it discrimination or prejudice. And he uses here, as we read, the example of a rich, well-dressed man versus a poor man who is not dressed so well. And James says very plainly that we as Christians should not be prejudiced. We shouldn't discriminate against other people. We should not show favoritism. Now James could say this because God has revealed, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and he could also have leaned on his own experiences of having been with Jesus, that God shows no partiality. God has no favorites. We see in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 17 and Acts chapter 10 and verse 34 that God is not a respecter of persons. That God does not discriminate. He doesn't pay attention to economic status or nationality or class or any such distinctions. And so because God doesn't, neither should we. Now, we may think that in our modern context, we have lots of discrimination and prejudice. And this is true. I mean, for example, uh, we all know of the advertisement by a prominent retailer concerning hair that was deemed to be racist in last week. Also, for us, just a few weeks ago, we spent hours having courageous conversations about our issue of race and racism in our South African context. And this is something that we need to continue to work on. But James here, when he wrote this letter, he was writing to a culture that had prejudice and favoritism and even hatred as part of the pillars that held that society up. And the prejudices that this community here that James is writing to were based on were based on class, on ethnicity, on nationality, on religious background, on age, even on your health status. Because you see, in, in the ancient world, people were permanently and consistently categorized. Because they were either, even as we see here in Scripture, you were either Jew or Gentile, you were either slave or free, male or female, you were rich or poor, you were Greek or barbarian, and the other categories continue. But, you know, one of the glorious things of the early church was that they rose above those distinctions. And it actually blew people's minds that you would have Christian communities where rich and poor would sit together in the same congregation. 
where slave and free would sit together in the same congregation. Greek and barbarian, Jew and Gentile, male and female, would sit together in the same congregation and be part of the same Christian community. This was revolutionary in the early church. But James noticed that this discrimination, uh, this prejudice, had started again to become an issue in the church, and so he needed to address it. And he does so in this letter. But you know what, eh? This issue that we read about here is actually still present in the church today, 2,000 years later. And so we can ask ourselves the question, and I can ask you, where are you at? Where are we at? Do we still see this happening in our community today? And if it is, then James is telling us here that there is no place for it in the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading from verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was, was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to, him, credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now these few verses that we just read here have actually caused a bit of confusion and in some quarters a bit of contention. Because it appears to be saying something that other scriptures appears not to be saying. For some people it seems to be saying very basically that you have to do good works to be saved. You've got to be doing good things. Now those of you who are familiar with Islam will know that this is at the foundation of their religion, of their belief. 
But this is not what James is saying here. Now for us to understand what James is saying, I think it's helpful to note that salvation has three tenses. Past, present and future. So, in the first tense, we have been saved. This is the initial salvation that has no activity on our part. It is passively received through Jesus and His atonement. Secondly then, we are being saved. This is about progressively being delivered from the bad habits that sin has left within us. So we are increasingly growing more like Jesus. And thirdly, we shall be saved, which is about being brought to glory, given our reward for the way that we have stored up treasures in heaven, as Jesus describes it. Now James is not referring to the initial salvation, or um, coming to faith, as we sometimes call it. But James is rather being, he's speaking about being progressively delivered, increasing in becoming like Jesus. I think he's talking about the shaping and the molding. Secondly, faith is not what saves you. Simply believing certain truths is not going to save you. Faith, I don't think, has some magical power that's going to bring a instant change. Now, the Bible does say that we are justified by faith. And it does say that whoever believes in Jesus will have everlasting life. But it's not the faith that saves you. It is Jesus who saves you. Faith is simply the way that we come to Christ. Faith is the way in which we receive what Jesus gives. There's the well-known story in Luke chapter 7 of the woman who comes and she, she washes Jesus' feet with, with her tears. She dries his feet with her hair and then she anoints his feet with the oil from the alabaster box. And Jesus says to the woman at the end of that, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The reason that the woman's faith had saved her was that it was her faith that had brought her to Jesus. Faith is kind of like the vehicle that brought her to Christ. And so for us, it's the means that we come to Jesus as well. A set of beliefs that does nothing more than make you a religious version of what you were before is useless to you and quite frankly it's problematic to others. Adopting a set of beliefs that doesn't translate into action has no value to community and of course it would then have no value to you. 
Paul writes in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. This is what he says. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then he mentions it's something related to it again later in verse 14 of chapter 3. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Simply having and talking about your faith without doing anything about it has no impact on your life nor does it have impact on the lives of others. True faith should reveal a changed life, a changed way of being. And so the, me the message that James has for us here that we've read through in these few verses is that in the same way that a body without a spirit is dead, we call that a corpse, so too it is possible to have a faith that without works that would indicate death. In closing, real faith is not only demonstrated by spiritual things, things that we can't touch and feel. Authentic faith is also shown by action. And so for us there must be a balance as we follow Jesus and as we try to walk as he did. We must engage ourselves in this journey of being followers of Jesus so that we can bear fruit and allow ourselves to be molded and shaped ever more into the image of Jesus while we communicate the gospel to a broken world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the evidence of your presence in our lives. We thank you that you come and you change us, that you convert us. We thank you that you are continuing to shape us and to convert us. And we thank you that we have a bright hope of glory to look forward to. Lord, as we continue to grapple with these issues that we have thought of in these last few minutes, we ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in our hearts and in our minds, and that you would continue to provide us with opportunities in our community to be shaped and to shape one another. Because we eagerly desire to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.